passages of scripture this morning that um, that you should know. Just a moment ago you were singing the words, I want to be where you are. And I called, you answered, and you came to my rescue. And I want to be where you are. Did you sing those words this morning? I mean, you were, they were going through your lips, and through your mind, through your heart. And I would have to conclude, or at least hazard the guess, that while you were singing and saying those words, there was some mental image that you had, or at least a hope, of where that is. I want to be where you are. Well, where is that? For some, it's just a place of solitude. For others, it's a place of peacefulness. For others, it's a place of of hiding in Christ and being with Him. And so we go through a number of different, I think, spiritual mental exercises when we're approaching that kind of a lyric and saying, what does that mean? And I want to show you where Jesus is and where you really are. Okay? Now, your opinion or my opinion or your mental image or mine, but what the Bible says about where Christ is right now. Now, it's not a hidden mystery, is it? Lots of us already know the answer. Where's Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's a pretty good place to be. And you're singing, I want to be where you are. Meaning, I want to be with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I like the picture in Revelation even better when Jesus says, To he that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I sit in my Father's throne with him. And I I use this regularly. I just see Jesus sitting on the lap of the Father and me sitting on the lap of Jesus. And, uh, you know, the Father's got his arms around Jesus and me all together. And the question is, if God be for me, who can be against me? In that moment, who's going to attack me and when? Because they're going to have to get through Jesus and the Father to get to me. I am well taken care of. You are well taken care of when you are with Christ. Want to be where you are, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know, What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? This is a prayer that Paul has given us. He's prayed for the church. He's basically praying for spiritual revelation to come upon the body of Christ. We've prayed this prayer numerous times ourselves, I'm sure, in the church and around our friends. We're praying for the body of Christ as well, that this same spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom and revelation about the knowledge of him would be ours. The eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. Our hearts would be opened by the spirit of God to perceive what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us? What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us? It says this, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is the greatness of his power. Rose Jesus from the dead, and now Jesus is seated at his right hand. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. 
And he, that is God, put all things under his feet, that is Jesus, and gave him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the head of the church. It is his body. You are his body. If you're in Christ, you're part of his body. And where's Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all principalities and powers. What are those principalities and powers? Those are uh, demonic legions, if you will. Those are the one-third of the angels that fell from from heaven with Satan when he was kicked out. And they now have, uh, give this illustration of principalities in the scripture, we all know what a municipality is, right? That's a city. It's a government. And we draw a geographic line around a, uh, an area of land and we say that's the city. We could use the city of Big Bear Lake as an example. It's always confusing, isn't it, to tell people where you live? I live in Big Bear City. But there's a Big Bear Lake, which is a city. It's incorporated, but we're not. So we're a city, but they're a city. Does that ever confuse you? It confuses me. Which ones, well, where do you live? Do you live in the city or in the lake? I said, I live in the city, but it's unincorporated. It's not a city. Anyway, semantics. You draw a line around an area of ground and it becomes a city that we know is a municipality. And a municipality governs itself. It elects its own people and it rules over its people and does things. And if you happen to live on the other side of the line of the municipality, we don't pick up your trash. Right? And, we, uh, and when there's a fire that's in a questionable area, they send both fire departments and whoever gets there to figure out whose it is. And they okay, you squirt first, it's yours. It's on the other side of the line. It's not ours. We only govern inside our municipality. Principalities in scriptures are, are uh, also in the same way. See, the, the devil has assigned demons over areas of geography, and, they, and they've, he's given them place and said, now rule over that, make a dominion over that, usurp what God has, trespass on his land, take as many of the people as you can. That's yours to govern. And then along comes the church, and we're inside this same principality area, and you can back all this up with scripture. I'm not dreaming this stuff up. You know, you've got you can go read the book of Daniel. It says Daniel started praying, and the you know the angel was dispatched the day he started praying, but he was hindered by another warfare in the in the heavenlies. He had to fight his way through that principality. And when he finally got there, it was three weeks later, got there with the answer, said, "I'm sorry, I'm late, but I was dispatched the first day you prayed th- three weeks ago, and I was on my way. And as soon as I'm done here, I got to go fight another one." So you have principalities and powers. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood or land mass or geography, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. There are days we need to close our eyes to what we've seen in the natural and understand there's a spiritual warfare going on all around us all the time. And you're in it. You're in the army of God. You're enlisted. You've given your heart to Jesus. And you're now part of the army of God. It's one of the biblical illustrations of the church as an army. And so you're in the army and there's a war going on. And there are principalities and powers that have been assigned. And I'll say this specifically to Big Bear Valley. To usurp what God's plan is for, their, for our community. But then along comes the church. And Jesus says, behold, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples. And we move into our community, we begin to win souls and make disciples for Jesus, and all of a sudden the balance of power starts getting upset. See, the spiritual wickedness in high places is not happy about souls coming into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This warfare is not something they look forward to. Why? Because they're losers. Say it with me. They lose. Amen. I'm a winner. They're losers. Right? 
Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go. And he said, I give you all authority over all the power of the devil. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. So then in Ephesians 6, he gives us the full armor of God, says put it on and get into the fight. And you'll notice that in the full armor of God, there's nothing on the back. Hello. We're not supposed to be running. There's nothing to protect that side if you run. You'll get your fanny spanked. We are able, well able, we're like Joshua's and Caleb's, who said we are well able to take the land. So we have a landmass here that's being governed by principalities and powers. And we, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, are supposed to put on display the manifold and many-faceted wisdom of God, put it on display to principalities and powers, and begin to rule in our community. Wow, this is a fun message. This isn't in my notes. But we need to hear it. Because, you know, in a week or so, we're going to hold tent meetings out in the... In the, at the Snowplay Hill across from Riffenburg every night, 6.30. <clears throat> Evangelist Chris Clock will be preaching in the tent, and you're invited to come every night and invite all your friends. And uh, Our worship teams will be leading worship next Sunday night in the tent, and uh, that'll be our night. And then the other churches are going to rotate on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday is the uh, Spanish church night. I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, and then Saturday, I believe, is a youth night. So all weeks, it's going to be, we're going to be pounding away at the principalities and powers. Hallelujah. We're going to be reaching into darkness, pulling people out of the darkness and translating them into the kingdom of His Son. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? You remember the day you came out of the darkness and the lights came on for you? People getting free. This is going to be good, but it's not going to be without a fight. Now, do I have to fight physically? No. Do I have to? No. I have Second Corinthians 10 says, my, my warfare is not in the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Amen. So, where's Christ? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, I've seen it this way over the years, that uh, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, it says, You, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. Sins, plural. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to what? The prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. There's that prince of the principalities, again described. You know, they are princes. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. I guess for you it's over here on this side, isn't it? I'm, this is my right hand. That's your right hand. And you and I are in Christ. So I want to be where you are. Where's Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the Father. I tend to think lowly of myself. The Bible teaches us to do that. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. So I've applied uh, this position in the body of Christ to myself. That is the lowest part of the skin on the heel. That's me. That's the lowest part. There's some uglier parts I could be. And you could be. But we won't talk about those. So if I'm the lowest part of the skin of the heel of Jesus' body, because I'm a part of the body of Christ, and he is seated far above all principalities and powers, then where am I? I am far above all principalities and powers. When Paul wrote Romans chapter 16, verse 20, he said, May the God of peace soon crush Satan underneath your feet. 
and I'm the lowest part of the skin of the foot, then I get the job of crushing Satan. I get the job of being that part of the body of Christ that applies the pressure to the enemy. Now, maybe you're a different part of the body of Christ. Maybe I'm not the skin on the foot. I'm just trying to give you a visual and a picture that if you're in Christ, all these things that generally trouble your life, which are usurpers and demonics and uh, you know things that are happening in the spirit realm to come to steal, kill, and destroy... Jesus told us in John 10.10, the enemy only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. My interpretation of that verse is this. He will only show up if there's an opportunity to steal something, to kill something, or to destroy something. Otherwise, he's got other things to do. He's going to be somewhere else. But demons are assigned to do what Satan does, and that is kill, steal, and destroy. Kill your joy, kill your life, kill your family, kill your job, steal your joy. steal. You get the picture. But I'm seated in Christ. Spiritually and positionally, that's where I am. Now, I've got to live it out here on the earth. And that's where I get the opportunity to say, Kingdom of God come, will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know how it all works, but I do know it works. And I know that it can work for you too, that you can live above a lot of what you're living in now. And this is not just a self-help message. This is a figure yourself out in Christ I'm seated with Christ. I'm part of the body of Christ. He's the head. I am not disconnected. He's not up there and I'm way down here. We are connected. This is a close your eyes spiritual moment. This is an edict from God that says, now walk in the authority of the body of Christ. Do what the head says to do. He gives the directions. We just execute the plans. He says, take your city for for me. I say, okay, what's my part? You've got a plan how to do that. It includes worship, it includes cells, it includes tent meetings, it includes all kinds of things. It includes you and I going on to our jobs and carrying the presence of God with us and dispelling darkness everywhere we go. You know, I really believe that when you walk into a room, the atmosphere of that room should change. If there's demonic warfare going on in that room and you walk in, the lights are on. And the devil hates light. He loves darkness because his deeds are evil. And you turn the lights on when you walk into the room. You turn the lights on when you visit somebody's home. You're carrying the very presence of Jesus. That's why it's such a delight to go to another home where Christians live, because then you get everybody together. We're all there to worship Jesus. The atmosphere is good, and the devil's pressed out. When you come home at night and you pull into your driveway, guys, do you take the worst part of your day into your home with you? Or are you like that little carpenter guy that used to go have a bad day, and when he come home, he pull in the driveway and walk over this little tree and touch all the tops of the limbs? And then he'd go in and he'd love his family and he'd play with his kids. Then we'd come out in the morning, he'd go over the same little tree and pick on a few branches and he'd leave and somebody noticed that, what are you doing? He said, that's my trouble tree. Every night when I get home, I take all my troubles and I hang them on these branches. I'm not taking them into the most important part of my day. I'm not going to take my troubles into my home. This is the warfare I experience in the world, but I'm not going to take it in there because that's the most precious thing I have. And he says, then when I come out in the morning, I know it's my responsibility to take those troubles up again. But I notice in the morning when I go to pick them up, there's fewer than the ones that I left the night before. And then I go back into the world and into the fray and into the battle. We're in spiritual warfare constantly. There's no breaks. There's no days off. There's no sabbaticals. There is an infirmary. <laughs> when you get wounded, we can take you into the hospital. But you are seated, according to the scriptures, in 2.6. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus.
I mentioned 310, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom, the many faceted wisdom of God might be made known by the church. The church is to put on display the wisdom of God in the earth. Two, and that display is put on two principalities and powers in the heavenly places. These words in the Greek, in the original language, are the same words Paul uses in chapter 6. When he says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers. So it's not two different sets or two different uh, groups that he's talking about. He's talking about demonic forces versus God. When you sing, I want to be where you are, we should sing with understanding that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And he has given it to us to rule and to take dominion. All goes all the way back to Genesis When he told Adam and Eve, take dominion over this. This is yours. I've given it to you. I've made it. Take dominion. We lost it to the devil through sin. Jesus paid the price for us to come back. We're back. We're restored to the body of Christ. We're under his headship. He says, now the dominion mandate belongs to you as the church. Take dominion. Don't get beat up every day. Don't get whooped on every day. Don't let the enemy take from you, steal from you. Demand he leave you alone. Take the authority that Christ has given you in his name. Exercise it. Take the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, which is the word of God, and do battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, again, in verse 18, it says, Praying with all kinds of prayers and supplications in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is powerful. Worship of God is powerful. Think of it. If you were a demon and somebody was worshiping God, would you want to be around? That's not where you'd want to be. Right? You want to be where people are cursing God and destruction is happening and stealing and killing and things like that are going on. That's, you know, that's where you want to be if you're a demon. So you having problems? Just throw your hands in the air and begin to worship Jesus. Begin to turn the lights on in the spirit realm. And the devil will flee. James says resist the devil and he will flee. That's an old joke. It says give, give the devil a case of the fleas. You have the authority to do so. In Colossians, just to finish this first message, chapter 2, verse 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you, or plunder you, or take you captive. Colossians 2, verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you, plunder you, take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. We must be careful to understand what the Bible says and not just our opinion. Paul said about the group of people that he ministered to in Berea, we call them the Bereans, Hence the Christian bookstores, Berean bookstores. Paul said that the Bereans were more noble than the Corinthians because they would listen to Paul preach and then they would go back to the scriptures and examine the scriptures about what Paul had just said. And as they would examine the scriptures, they would verify whether what he said was true or not. When they verified it was true, then they would come back and listen again. They were more noble, he said. They were, they were willing to verify what was being taught from the scriptures. And I want to suggest to you too that when Paul wrote this to the Colossians, beware lest anybody plunder you or take you captive or, or cheat you through philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy going on in the church, the body of Christ around the world. 
You know, 450,000 churches in America, a lot of them are preaching less than the gospel. I'm not going to pick on any one group because it could be anywhere, but you and I have to be like Bereans. Even what I'm telling you this morning, you should verify by the scriptures and say, I wonder if Pastor Jeff's telling me the truth or not. Am I being cheated? Am I being plundered? Am I being taken captive by a vain philosophy or a doctrinal position that isn't accurate? Check it out. Prove it to be true. Test it. But beware of all the things you're hearing and all the books you read and all the magazines that come down and all the, even all the Christian information that there is. You know that it conflicts with itself. You, know, you can listen to this message and then drive away from here and turn on the radio and get a whole different picture from a different preacher. And then your mind says, well, what do I believe? Listen, you better know how to figure it out from here. And that's why we're here, is to help train you to do that. So beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Jesus is the head of all principality and power. Hear that again. Jesus is the head of all principality, municipality, all geographic boundaries. He is the head of all principality and all power. I'm sure if we looked up this word power, we'd find out to be the word either energeo or dunamis or one of the four power words of the New Testament, meaning that Jesus has all authority in every geographic boundary of the world. And he turns to us and says, now, go. Because of that, go. And wherever the sole of your foot treads like Joshua, I'm going to give you that place. We should just stand a little taller, chest out a little further, mind a little clearer every time we walk through this community and say, I am taking ground for Jesus on my block. When you're driving home or when you walk into your house, are you saying to your, to your neighborhood, this neighborhood belongs to Jesus. We used to have these signs that says, we're praying for you. We gave them out to the people in the church and we said, put it in your front window. But before you do, go to your neighbors and say, listen, I live in that house down there with a little sign in the window that says, we're praying for you. I want to know how can I pray for you. And you just make yourself known at every door. Some of them, you know, they'll slam. Just don't wear a white shirt and a tie when you do it. Or a little name badge, you know. I just want to know how I can be praying for you. And then every now and then go back down the neighborhood and say, uh, you know, I've been praying about that situation. You, know, How's it going? Has it changed? Has God done something for you? You'd be surprised at how many people will then begin to come to your place or find your phone number and say, you know, could you pray about this? Or they're sticking things in your mailbox or whatever. But we make ourselves available to our community to take ground for Jesus. And we're in him. He's seated above all principality and powers. It all belongs to him. He's the ruler. And we're supposed to bring it all back under his authority. Now, some of you are looking at me like, hmm, how's that going to work? Well, would you be willing to give it a try? Like that lady that died and they found her Bible. It's an old story, but they were flipping through her Bible. And down in the column on the sides were these T period, P period, all over the Bible. T, P, T, P. Some places there was just a T and no P. And I thought, what is all this T, P and going on in the Bible? They finally figured out it was all next to promises where she had said T was for try, P was for proved. And she had tried everyone and proved them. Some of them still unfinished. But we ought to take this to the bank 
and put it to the test because God will not fail his word. Amen. Second message begins. I want to talk about four views of the cross this morning for the next few minutes, and I am keeping an eye on the clock, so you won't have to. And I'm planning on 12. Just kidding. 11. Four views of the cross. Every one of us are going to have to face these four views of the cross. The first view is coming to the cross. And I want to begin with Mary in John chapter 19. And demonstrate what I mean by this view of the cross. John chapter 19, verse 25, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. It's one of those verses where you think everybody's name is Mary. And they are. There's at least three of them there. Mary is in front of the cross. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, who's that, the disciple Jesus loved? John. John, thank you. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, you don't have to turn there. Let me read it for you. It says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul goes on to write that by the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God. And so God chose by the foolishness of the preaching of the cross, men would be saved. He said, therefore, by the foolishness of God, he outwitted the wisdom of men. I want to talk about the cross this morning, this, this emblem this place in time that divides all of history, this saving place, a place where salvation was purchased for you and I, and every one of us and every person in the world is going to have to deal with this first step of coming to the cross. Mary, when she was in front of the cross, she was standing there with what? Brokenness, loss, uh, sorrow, personal regret, misunderstanding, all these things were rushing through her, no doubt. This is my son. He's on the cross. How can this be? It's not supposed to end like this. But this is the same mother, Mary, who, uh, and when Jesus would do things, she would take those things and store them in her heart. She didn't cause a lot of ripples in the group. She didn't try and lead. She just said, I just store these things up. Jesus said this. And she, in fact, became a disciple of her own son. But in front of the cross, she was coming to the cross. She had to reconcile life in this moment of facing and coming to the cross. For her, it was a disastrous place. And standing next to her is John, the beloved disciple. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, sees the scenario and says, This is your son. This is your mother. And he speaks to John from the cross and talks about close relationship. Peter, James, and John, that inner circle that were often with Jesus in the intimate moments of prayer or on the Mount of Transfiguration, he would call them aside and they would go with him. And so he says to John, you have to, you are close family to me. You are my friend. You are my brother. And now you need to take care of my mom. Deep friendship, loyalty. And he was speaking that from this, this isn't where it ends today, John. I'm on the cross here. But I'm telling you, life is going to continue after I die. So, and it's continuing on. Life will continue on. Take care of mom. 
And that disciple takes her to his own home thereafter. One coming to the cross was grief and sorrow and misunderstanding and regret. The other was inheriting a new life and saying things are going to change from today, but today is going to at least include, i got to take mom home to live with me. Because of my loyalty and my close friendship with Jesus, this is now acting upon my life. Who's another person that we see dealing with the cross, coming to the cross? Luke, chapter 23. Different view of the cross, same coming to it, but a different response to it. In Luke 23, verse 50, uh, excuse me, 2339, coming out. No, that's not it either. I'm in 22. Turn the page. There we go. 2339, Luke. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, right, one on each side of Jesus, blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Don't you even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, significant word, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Both these thieves were coming to the cross. They're on their own crosses. But they're still having to deal with the one Jesus is on. One wants only what he can get out of it. Well, if you're really the Son of God, you can do all these things and get us all out of here. I have no intention of following you or serving you. I just would like to be off this cross. And the other one says, Hey, idiot. <laughs> you know, you deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. This, he's done nothing wrong. This is the Lord. I'm coming to the cross from a side perspective. He's the Lord. And he abandons every other hope he's got. He's got none. He's dying on the cross. But he says, Lord, I recognize your Lord. So remember me. If there's anything that could be done for me, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm going to take you there today. By the way, if the question ever comes up along your travel somebody who accepted Christ but was not baptized in water and whether or not they get to go to heaven, I would ask the question, where was this guy's water baptism? You know, God's got a lot of grace. There are those streams in the kingdom of God that forcefully say, unless you're water baptized, you won't go to heaven. I don't know how they deal with this picture. I I just don't know. I'm not making fun of them. I just don't know. They must have a way of dealing with it in order to hold to their doctrine. But, you know, if if somebody accepts Jesus here this morning and gets hit by a car on the way home. Listen, you're going to heaven. But you got to accept Jesus. Baptism's next. In Mark chapter 15, another coming to the cross. Fifteen. 37, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. He had a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred guys 
a centurion. He's been overseeing the activity of the day as Jesus has been crucified. And these are his guys that are doing the work, pounding the nails and standing the crosses up and impaling these guys. He's, he's the boss. He's the centurion. And he sees this happen, and as it happens, he, he just declares, this is the Son of God. This is the centurion coming to the cross, the soldier. You have to deal with it. Everybody's got to come and face the cross at some point. And what you do when you're there makes an eternal difference. Let's add one more. How about Saul of Tarsus? How did Saul, later to be known as Paul, the apostle, how did Saul deal with the crucifixion of Jesus? Have you ever thought about it? Saul doesn't meet Jesus personally until a little later, right? On the road to Damascus. But how did Saul deal with the fact that Jesus was being crucified outside of town? For him, he just ignored it. It was just another day at the crucifixions. This is a Roman thing. You know, we do this all the time. He's a Roman Jew, and somebody's getting impaled today. Eh, no big deal, just another day. I could ignore it. I'm going about my business as usual. It's just an everyday occurrence. It's a part of the society I'm in. I don't even have to pay attention, as long as it's not me or any of my friends. And he just ignored it, or accepted it. But it was nothing personal, had nothing to do with him. You know, we're surrounded by people in our culture that have a similar attitude. The cross is real. The truth is there. It's, it's put on display. You live it out in front of them, and they can just ignore it. And that's hard for us at times, isn't it? Because we want them to come to the cross and make a decision about the cross. They just decide to ignore it. So the question for this part of coming, this view of the cross coming to it, is who is Jesus to you? And this is one of the questions I enjoy talking with people, when if, at least even to a, a stranger uh, or somebody that were involved in a meeting together someplace and at some point there's been enough relationship to ask the question, so who's Jesus to you? I love to ask people this question because I want to hear what they have to say. And what they tell me is generally very, uh, very much all I need to understand their position and where they're at in coming to the cross. Who's Jesus to you? Well, I understand he's a nice guy. Uh, wasn't he a teacher or a prophet or something like that? And then say, well, now I know where they're at. They're looking at the cross from a distance, and maybe I can get them a little closer and help them see that Jesus is the Son of God. So who is Jesus to you? The second view of the cross is through the cross. And this is important for us as believers, as those who have come to faith. I mentioned Paul in Acts chapter 9. Actually, he's still Saul. And if you've not heard this, let me read it quickly. Chapter 9, Acts, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of, quote, the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. <clears throat> 
But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. To him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here am I, Lord. The Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him so he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many about, uh, excuse me, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he has chosen a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And then all who heard were amazed and said, Isn't this he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelled in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Paul, after this incredible conversion experience, this was not a decision to accept Christ. This was a transformational conversion of his life, including miracles, signs, wonders, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, getting saved, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit, all in one big package. This man's transformed and immediately begins preaching, and immediately the revelation of who he's been fighting against becomes truth to him. That's his coming to the cross. But the beauty of this is that the statement that Paul himself gives us in Galatians 6.14, as he writes to the churches in Galatia sometime later, and he says this, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul has come through the cross. He came to the cross, but then he passed through the cross. And I use these pictures of these young ladies because they're holding the crosses in front of them. It's just symbolic for me that they're behind the cross. And this is what I mean by coming through the cross. When we come to Christ, when we deal with being in front of it to the cross, we pass through it. Saul, now Paul says, that cross has, I'm crucified by it to the world and the world to me. That means I'm on one side of the cross and the world's on the other. I'm, I'm crucified to it. I can no longer participate with it. I'm not a part of the world anymore. I'm a new person. And the world's crucified to me. It's dead to me. And I'm dead to it. And the cross stands between us. And the world on the other side is crucified on that side of the cross, and it no longer is alive for me either. So it separates us. I think this is a tremendous statement that we should understand as believers that we are on one side of the cross and the world is on the other. We don't mix anymore. We don't hang out. We're not part of it. It's not part of us. We're born again. We're of a new world. We're of a new dimension. We're of a new spirit. Jesus said you must be born again. Why? Because you're dead in trespasses and sin. 
But when you're born again, you're not born to live and participate with the world. You've come through the cross. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I still live. Yet it's not I that's living, it's Christ who's living in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died, who loved me and gave himself for me. You and I are alive in Christ. We're alive on this side of the cross. We're behind it. We're protected. It's a beautiful place to be. You can pass Colossians 2.20. We won't use that. And just go to the next one where it says that by the cross we have a separation factor. We're separated from the world. We also, when we're separated, <clears throat> and, and at the, uh, let me use an illustration. Some of you have heard my testimony. Let me just pull a piece out of it. And uh, it's kind of funny because I love to hear my own story. I, I rejoice in what happened. But after I got saved here at Jack in the Box, uh, I took vacation with my brother. The two of us, I was uh, still didn't, I, don't, I guess I had a driver's license. I'm not sure. We drove illegally to Illinois anyway, one way or another. I drove at night so that it looked like there's just one person in the car and my brother would sleep. I didn't have a license, so I guess I was a sinner at that time. So it was probably the second or third trip we made. Anyway, we went back to Illinois and we were going to be there for a month and visit our old friends and hang out. And they came over to where we were staying at my brother's friend's house with he and his mom. And they came in and said, hey, let's go. You know, you're the California guy now. And so whatever's California was cool. And they wanted to know all about what's happening in California. And I was supposed to be that representation to them now. And I said, well, yeah, before we go, though, I wanted to tell you guys what happened to me. And, and I said, what, what? You know, if it's in California, we want to know. I said, well, I got saved. I gave my life to Jesus. And I don't do a lot of stuff I used to do. I'm, I've got a new life. I'm living. And they're sort of backing toward the door. Really? Wow. Oh, how about that? Okay, listen, we'll be right back. And they never came back. They, they left. They never came back. And I'm standing in this house of a person I don't really know. And I'm looking at 30 days with no friends, no car, nothing. I found my first point of separation from the world in that moment that was really significant. And I thought, what am I going to do? Lord, I'm here and I've got 30 days and... So I went for a walk and I was kind of bemoaning the fact that my friends had left me and I didn't get to lead them to Jesus. But I found a church right around the corner. So I started hanging out with the people there and going to their services. And that was a blast. And there was a little hospital down the street and I'd go and visit the kids in the peed wards. And I'd pray all through the peed wards. And I'd visit the kids and I'd pray for them and go to the next room, visit the kid and pray for them. At the end of the week, when I came back to the hospital, all the kids were gone. And I asked the nurse, I said, where's all the kids? They said, oh, they're all gone home. They're all well. And I thought, oh, that's, that's good, but kind of bad. And there's nobody to pray for. And as I was walking out, it, it just struck me that Jesus had been healing all these kids while I'd been praying for them. Not me, him. I thought, this is a reality. I am separate. You can go to that next couple of things there. The separation that comes is by coming through the cross. I'm on the other side. It's a different life over here. And in that separation, sometimes our, our, our friends leave us and our previous existence isn't fun anymore. We're not part of that. We're separated from it. And in that separation, there's a plan for our growth. We're supposed to kind of hide behind the cross, in my mind, and begin to grow in him and uh, learn of him. In that separation comes a new set of associations. Our friends change. The people we hang out with. We're more comfortable. I was more comfortable walking around the block and walking into a group of people I didn't know that all loved Jesus. 
than I was hanging out with my old friends and living the old life. So there's a plan for growth, association, separation, association, and then there's protection behind the cross. And some some of us could testify that when we were separated to, from the world, we got back involved in it a little too soon, any of us. And, and the world kind of took over our life again, and we had this mix of being saved and living in the world again. And it was treacherous for us. We don't belong there. It doesn't work anymore for us. The things that used to make us happy, we thought, no longer make us happy. They're an irritant to our Christian nature. They're an irritant to the Jesus that lives inside. And so there, we have a protection piece that comes with being through the cross. So I want you to remember uh, in this question, what side of the cross are you living on? If I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me, then the question is, what side of the cross are you living on? And did you come out from behind it too soon? If so, then you've got a mixed situation. You need to get separated again. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Jesus prayed for us that we would be in the world, but not of the world. The third view of the cross is to carry the cross. And Jesus brought this to us clearly in Mark chapter 8. You've heard it before, I hope. And we'll hear it again. In fact, let's, yeah, Mark eight thirty four. But when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Beauty of the cross, one size fits all. Everybody has the same responsibility. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. When I hear the phrase, people use it from time to time, well, I've got this cross to bear. Or, well, you know, that's my cross in the world. There's this tone that says it's a negative issue. Something that I wish I didn't have. The truth of it is should be flipped. We should be embracing the cross. Saying, wait, I get a chance to carry the cross? You're telling me that I have an opportunity to be in partnership with Jesus Christ? Jesus carried the cross first. And then as he's carrying it, remember Simon? The guy that was there that day and they, the soldier said, here, you carry it for him. They're giving me that opportunity that I could carry the cross for Christ? Is that a negative issue? No, that's an identification issue. That says, I am identified with Christ. I want to be a part of who he is. If you think about Simon, I heard a message by this. In fact, Pastor Aaron De La Borda preached this message once. He might have even preached it here in Mexico, I don't recall. But he, he laid out the life of this Simon guy. Simon was on his way to Jerusalem. He was a, didn't live there, so he'd, like you, he's traveled a lot. <laughs> and he traveled a long distance to get to Jerusalem. And when he got there, he was going to the feast. And so he finds himself stuck in this crowd. He's not really apparent. What's going on here? These crosses are going by and people. And then the soldier picks him out of the crowd and says, You, come here, you carry the cross. This flood through his mind was this. Wait a minute. I've taken time to purify myself. I'm cleansed. I'm Jewish. 
for me to touch that and be involved with the man who's being crucified, to get drug into this, means I become unclean. I become impure. And, and that means no sacrifice. That means no temple. That means no end to the journey I'm on. I can't even go and participate. It's going to rule me out entirely of my savings, my travel, my family's here. It, it takes me out. That'd be like you going wherever you go, Hawaii or something, and getting all your money together to hop off the plane and find out that you can't be there. You get to sit on the tarmac for a week. You can't come in here. We're not going to let you. Well, I said, well, my savings, my plans, my, I'm off work, everything, I, I got ready to be here. And they say, sorry, you just stay here for a week till your flight leaves. Terminal. It just flashed in my mind. And he, as he takes the cross, he's realizing this, this, this does me in. See, it cost him something to carry the cross. There's a great illustration there. He's carrying the cross going, this is not what I came to Jerusalem for. But he carries it all the way up. He probably stuck around for the event. Might as well, can't go to the temple. It takes a week to become cleansed. It's all going to be over in a week. It's, it's over for me. My life savings and my one trip to Jerusalem is over. But he's got a, he's coming. That's his coming to the cross. It's another view. Paul the Apostle in Philippians chapter 3 said, I've got this, you know, I'm circumcised, I'm a Pharisee, I keep the law, I'm a perfect guy, everything's wonderful. These are all my credentials. He said, I chuck them to the wind for this one thing. I want to know Christ and I want to know him crucified. And I pray that I be, could become part of the fellowship of his sufferings. If I could, Paul says, if I could just fellowship with Jesus in his suffering, then I might attain to the resurrection as well. Well, Paul definitely participated in the sufferings of Jesus, didn't he? By his own testimony, he took stripes five times. Stripes means whipping, like Jesus got. Probably not as severe as what Christ got. But he got 39 lashes is a set of stripes. If you go to 40, you break the law. 39 was the maximum you could whip a guy without breaking the law. Paul said, I took stripes five times. Let's see, five times 39 is what? Beat with rods, left for dead, stoned for dead, left in, outside the city, laying there and gets up and walks again. He says, hey, I bear in my body the suffering and the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because I want to participate with Christ. I am carrying my cross, and if my cross is suffering, I rejoice. Paul wrote letters to the church saying, if you're suffering for Christ, rejoice. It's working. This is how it's supposed to be. If everybody likes you, you're probably doing something wrong. If you're not offending or, or uh, you know, racking a few people in your relationships because of your relationship with Christ, or probably you're not living it out on the end of your sleeve far enough. You should be ruffling some feathers out there and bringing life wherever you go. With his partnership in Christ and carrying the cross, he says, I carried it first, now it's your turn. It should become part of our practice, our custom, our habit, our, our lifestyle. And as I said before, in 8, verse 38 of Mark, it says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Public identification with Christ. 
not being ashamed of the gospel, not being ashamed of who your best friend is. Carry the cross, the final view of the cross. And this is probably the one that most of us in here are facing because we're willing to carry the cross at least to some degree. You're here today. You're, you're making a statement. I want to be with the body of Christ. I want to worship Jesus together collectively with others. This is part of carrying the cross. This is part of identifying with Christ, being connected to the body. And I respect and honor you for that. And I, I want to be a part of that myself. And, you, and about the time you're carrying your cross, you're saying, Lord, I'm doing pretty good. Hi. He says, yeah, there's just one more view you need to have. What's that? Is there something better than carrying the cross? He says, yeah, you need to get on it. What? <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah, just park it, stand it up, and get on it. Get on the cross? What does that mean? That means death the self. Dying the self. Volunteering as Jesus did to say this phrase that comes out of Luke chapter 22. Jesus is praying in the garden. He's called his disciples. He says, pray that you don't enter temptation. He goes a stone's throw away and he kneels down and he prays. He says, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is the phrase the catchphrase, the motto of the believer who's been carrying the cross. And Jesus says, okay, now let's take the final step. There's just one more thing you should do. Die to self. Get on the cross. Paul the Apostle said, I die daily. Remember that phrase? I die daily. How do you die daily? You get up in the morning and you deny yourself. You have two choices to make, this or this. And you're looking at those two choices and you say, which one pleases me most? Which one do I want most? And which one does God want most? And dying to self is folding the hand that says, that's for me, and doing what Jesus wants. It's not that it's bad. It's not that it's always hard. It, in fact, is the thing and the path that leads to the most life. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. What's that called? There's a, there's a name for that. The Bible's full of these things. It's not a dichotomy. It's a, I'll find it later. Terrible. I should have looked it up first. Not my will, but yours be done. I listed four of the scriptures in the Gospel of John. I won't go to them. 434, 530, 638, 829. These are four different places where Jesus says, I, I didn't come to speak my own words. I came to say what he said. I didn't come here to do my own purpose. I came to accomplish his will. He's constantly saying, I came to do the Father's will, not my own. And he proved that by going to the cross and in that last moment saying, Lord, if you could, Father, if you could remove this cup from me, do so. But still, not my will, yours be done. Paul the Apostle wrote in Philippians chapter 1, he said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain? We might think of that in ultimate terms, and I want to let you know, I'll slip this in here, kind of an announcement in the moment, is that uh, our friend Bob Mark, Bob and Peggy Mark, Bob passed away on Tuesday. And so he's with the Lord. Victory. And his services are going to be on Tuesday, the 14th. This coming Tuesday, two days from now. The service will be at Sunset Hills in Apple Valley. Viewing at 10, service at 11. And then the, they're going to caravan up here, and he's going to be in, buried here in the local cemetery at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So if you could be at any one of those things or all of those things, 
uh, to support Peggy and Vaughn and Pam and their family. <clears throat> Please put in your calendar. Nothing at all if you can't make the run to Apple Valley and you can make it over to the cemetery at 3 on Tuesday afternoon. It would be wonderful to have the family gather around them for that support in that moment. But uh, Bob's with the Lord. And we tend to think of Paul's moment when he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We think in ultimate terms like Bob, to die is gain. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. I mean, with Jesus forever, he's in. And that's where we want to go. So to die is gain. But Paul wasn't necessarily saying, I'm looking for the ultimate thing when my body quits. He's saying, for me to die every day means Christ gets to live through me. And that is gain. Because Jesus taught us that if we would lose our life for his sake and the gospel, then we'd find it. So every day I choose to die to myself, I'm electing to live again and allow Christ to live through me. And the invitation is to you and I in Romans chapter 12 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Right? You know, the thing that's very important about a sacrifice is for it to work, it has to stay on the altar. It has to be consumed. You don't want to go down to the temple and take your sacrifice, put it on the altar and have it crawl off and run away and you have to go chase it down because then it wouldn't be effective. It has to die and it has to be consumed on the altar. And when we say, I want to get on the cross, I want to live for Jesus, we're saying, impale my life, impale my will, and let me surrender it to not my will, but yours be done. And here's my body, a living sacrifice. It doesn't die in the process, it's alive in the process. And when we're on the cross, if you could imagine yourself hanging there, because you were there. You were the reason Jesus was there, right? Your sins put him there. He elected to be there. On the cross, you have a spectacular worldview. You're there. It's the end of your life. You're dying. You're looking out at the world. How does the world look from that view? Doesn't it come into a pretty clear perspective? That this is what changes everything right here. This cross in the middle of time changes everything. It's a demonstration of God's love. And so you and I, if we'll get on the cross, die to self, begin to say, not my will, but yours be done as regularly as possible, and to live that out, our view of the world will change. Our perspective on the world will change. We'll see things in a whole new light. When we see things occur, we'll say, I get it. That's a spiritual issue. This isn't just a natural you know, car wreck at the corner, and I just happen to be here. This is a moment for the Spirit of God and the Kingdom of God to be in this place. And I'm carrying it. And I'm going to walk into this situation and I'm going to bring peace. You go visit somebody in the hospital, maybe I'll stop at two or three different rooms on the way in. Think about it. You have life. You can bring well-being to the presence of God wherever you go. Whatever you're doing. On your jobs, God can bless you and increase your work and increase your boss. God says he'll bless kings to get to you. He'll bless rulers so that he can get to you. If you're underneath that ruler, and that's a different message. And I said, I'd keep an eye on the clock, and it's 11.08, so we're done. Hit the brakes. Bring it in for a landing. While hanging on the cross, what do you suppose was important to Jesus? Hmm? I'm not asking you to answer that question. You might do that in your cell groups this week and tackle that one. 
have a discussion about it. I've heard a song, and you probably heard it too, that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was thinking about me. And that was important to him. I don't know how I could have done it, but I believe it's true. God is able to think of each one of us individually and personally. So today, four views of the cross. Have you come to the cross? If you came to it, what did you decide about the cross? If you said, that's the demonstration of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then you've come through the cross. And when you come through the cross, you should come into that place of separation, safety, and training, new associations, new preparation of your life, so that you can say, I'm no longer a participant in the world or the world with me. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I'm here to to demonstrate the kingdom of God on the earth. And so after my preparation is there, I come through the cross again to the other side to live it out by carrying that cross into the world and being a, a living illustration of Jesus in the earth. And then as I'm doing that, God says, great, just one more thing. Get on it. Die to yourself and find life to the full. Quit trying to make yourself happy and me happy at the same time. Just make me happy and you will find the fullest life you could ever have imagined by dying to self. It's a beautiful opportunity and it's an invitation that he makes to us. I think I'm going to try and chase down the Apostle Paul and hear him say, I die daily. I die daily. People try to kill me every day too, but... I choose to die. I choose to surrender. Therefore, when they're after me, they're just after Jesus. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word. Pray that you'll give us a clear view of the cross. Help us to see it from where we're standing today. Help us reconcile in our heart the next step we need to make. Father, if there's some here this morning who have never come to the cross, I pray that you'll help them right now. To say in their hearts before you that Jesus is the Lord. Like that thief did when he was hanging on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Like the centurion said, this truly is the Son of God. Who loved us and gave himself for us. If I'm talking to you this morning, you've never asked Jesus to to be your Savior. You know the day that you must. Simply pray this prayer to him right now. Say, Jesus, save me from my sin. Forgive me for living away from you, thinking about you but not really surrendering my life. Today, I choose to surrender my life to you. And I pray that as I come to the cross, you would be my Savior. Grant to me forgiveness, make my life new, and give me the gift of eternal life. Train me, teach me how to walk with you. I want to be your friend And I want you to be my friend and Savior. I welcome you into my heart. Live there forever. Amen. Father, for us others who have maybe need to take the next step, show us what it is. Show us how to die to self. Show us how to get behind the cross for a period of time to find that separation and protection that we so need. Oh, Lord, if it's just to pick it up and carry it again today, give us strength and courage to carry the cross for you. Let us identify with you everywhere we go and make a difference as your kingdom comes and your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be blessed and be a blessing.